Well, we are still in Revelation uh, chapter 13 this morning. Uh, We spent a couple of Sundays here already. truth is this is I'm not so convinced that we couldn't spend the rest of our lifetime just in Revelation chapter 13 (laughs) that uh, this stuff is so rich and so full with all kinds of golden nuggets and and it seems like every time you go back through it you see more and more and more and I would say this to you if you're not that familiar with Revelation be in Revelation don't run away from it but be in it Read it through, study it through, and when you finish, start all over again. And I guarantee you, I promise you this, that it'll become clearer to you every time you do that. Just as the same thing is true for all of Scripture. You may look upon the Bible today and say, there's no way in my whole lifetime I could read all that and understand it. But it is very doable. Did you know that if you just read, that you could read all the way through the Bible in about 72 hours? Is that that much time? Not really. Not when you spread it out over months and years and, uh, and all of that. So I just want to encourage all of you to be people of the Word. Be in the Word on a regular basis, even if it's just a verse here, there, and yonder. Uh, inherited a few things from my dad. I have a crowbar that is bent. <laughs> And in a, in, you know, what else? Uh, I've got like three tri squares and already had one and, you know, this, that, and the other and uh, some stuff like that. But I came across something recently. It was a Bible that I bought for my dad uh, not long after I became a believer. And I wrote him a lengthy note in the, in the very beginning of it. And I had completely forgotten about this Bible Uh, As a matter of fact, I wasn't sure what to do with this Bible until I picked it up and started looking at it uh, just recently. And the encouraging thing is this. It is highlighted all over the place. Which tells me this, that my father actually read it. (laughs) And I'm thankful for that. So be of the words and be about it continually. Uh, I'm not going to read back through the whole chapter, but uh, just remember the the main points here, and that is we have the the great red dragon, uh, and then the beast from the sea arises, and then the beast from the earth arises, and there's a lot of likeness between the beast who comes up out of the sea and and, and the great red dragon, Satan himself, we know who it is. It's not one of those things there's any question about. Uh, the, the book of Revelation itself declares to us that this great red dragon is none other than Satan, Apollyon, Abaddon, uh, all of those, those names that are given to the one that we call the devil, the, the evil one. We know who he is. Uh, and what we've seen here is there really is kind of an anti-Trinitarian thing going on here because there are three persons of the Trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit you see this kind of mimicked or mocked in the fact there's a great red dragon and then there's a beast that comes up out of the sea and then the one who comes out of the earth and there actually are likenesses of those those two beasts too 
the person of Jesus Christ into the person of the Holy Spirit. For instance, we studied last week that if you, if you go through the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, there's really not a spotlight put so much on the Holy Spirit, but it seems as though the Holy Spirit's purpose in the New Testament is to shine the spotlight on Jesus over and over again. You see the same thing going on with the second beast. It shines the light, encourages people in the world, and does some things to encourage people in the world to worship the beast and to worship the great red dragon. So we're going to pick up in verse 14 this morning in chapter 13. And it deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image uh, to the beast who had the wound of the sword uh, and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And who would those be? They would be Christians. They would be those who have the seal of God. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Just remember that there is a marked difference between beast number one and beast number two. Beast number one is terrible, horrifying to look upon, you know, just evokes fear in people. Uh, the second beast, on the other hand, has a resemblance of a lamb, as being gentle and all that. And his weapon is our words. He's also called the false prophet uh, uh, in different places. And so it seems as though his purpose here is to convince people to not follow the lamb, but to worship the beast, the first beast. Uh, and he even makes an image of this beast or has this image made. And he encourages people to worship this idol. We didn't bring this up when we were studying Reformation a few weeks ago. Because I, I, the main thing I hope that you get from it is this is that one of the reasons, the primary reason that there was a reformation to begin with was because the church itself actively withheld the word of God from people for a very long time. And it was a revolt, it was rebellion in essence against that. There were some other things that came to the fore and, and one of those is the use of images in the worship of Jesus Christ. In particular... The crucifix. Now, if you consider what the Bible has to say about these things, we, uh, we can understand why. Remember, we've mentioned the image of the serpent that, that, that Moses had made and raised up in the midst of Israel when they were uh, in, in the wilderness because of their rebellion against God. God had sent fiery serpents upon them, and, and whoever looked upon this image of the serpent was healed. 
And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find this is the people kept that for a long time, all the way until the time of the, 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 the ruling of King Hezekiah. And the time came when his, Hezekiah took that bronze serpent and he broke it into pieces. Why? Because Israel was worshiping it. Israel had been worshiping it ever since they had been in the wilderness. And it was an image. It's funny. We really have no sense at all of what Jesus' appearance is. But I can remember growing up in Sunday school, and every week we get this Sunday school material, and every week it had this gorgeous, handsome, long-haired man on the cover an image of Jesus. Now let me tell you, there's probably nothing wrong with it as long as people keep it in perspective. But see, one of the big issues in the Reformation is people have begun to worship the crucifix, not the one who was crucified. We need to be very, very careful about forming images of things in our mind, in our head, that we just don't have information for. As a matter of fact, there is only one passage in Scripture that gives us any idea of the appearance of Jesus, and it is not that he was a handsome, good-looking fellow. It was that it was even hard to look upon him. We need to be careful about having our own images. We can erect the images in our lives. As a matter of fact, you have images. And maybe say, you don't know me that well. I don't. The fact that matters, I know you well enough to know that you do. I do. And one of them is me. And we do tend to be sometimes very self-centered, self-focused people very easy for us to, to, to make ourselves the image that we, in essence, worship. You know, if we approach everything always with a question of how is this going to affect me, how does this impact me, that's exactly what we're doing. Self-worship is innate within us. We have to resist it. We have to fight against it. It's easy for people to worship gold and silver and riches and wealth and big houses and fancy cars and this and that and, you know, even something like retirement. And we can get to the point where we don't have to work anymore and we can do the things that we've always kind of wanted to do. Sadly, guys, I think very often, and let me tell you, I'm at that age, I'm fighting this myself. I'm tired, I'm beat up, I'm banged up, I want to quit. But, I have no sense that is what God's will is for me at this point. So do I have a choice? I would say no. I mean, if I'm a servant of God, I need to do what God leads me to do, not what my simple heart leads me to do. 
And this has been one of the dangers, my friends, of this retirement mentality because there are older people. I'm not saying this affects anybody in this room, but we know that there are old people that have this idea that I worked my life, I did my time, I put my time in, I've done my work. Now it's my time to do with what I want to do. That mentality does not exist in Scripture. We are called to be about our Father's business with every passing day for the rest of eternity. Not just pastors. Everybody. All of us. Notice here in verse 16, he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves. That ought to sound something very familiar to, to something we've already talked about that we're about to get into again already. That is this multitude, the 144,000 in the heavenly realm of all of those people that, that, that God's seal has been placed upon them. And where were they from? They were from all nations and all peoples and all tribes and etc. So in a sense, what we're seeing here, again, is this mimicry, this mockery that is going on. That the evil one has drawn people from all of these different people groups together to worship him. In essence, by worshiping the image of the beast, you need to understand that you're worshiping the one behind all of it, and that is the evil one. So all social barriers are jumped across, and people are brought together in this anti-Christ community. They're given a, a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Now that should ring a bell. It sounds very much like the sealing of the seal of God that has been placed upon the people of God. Now there's a difference between a mark in a seal. In the scriptures, these are not the same words. Their meaning is not the same thing. Marks are simply just designations that maybe you put on people to kind of set them apart from everybody else. Right? They are maybe skin deep. They don't have any real internal meaning. God's seal, on the other hand, as a true binding force, it binds us to him. It binds us to one another. It also has this. It is a seal of promise. It's God's seal that he will do everything that he has promised he will do. And one of those things is this, is he will save us from the evil one. Just remember this as we've gone through where we've seen this gross persecution of Christians at times, but over and over again, God's protection of them. 
maybe not protection in the way that we might expect or maybe the way that we might want. We know that some of these brothers and sisters that these letters were written to originally, those seven letters and the rest of, the continent, the rest of this book uh, were given to initially. That many of them are undergoing very severe persecutions. That some of them had given their lives already for Christ. Persecution has been a way of the church from, the, from its very roots, and it has been every day since then, and it will be every day, every day, guys, until Jesus comes back. And ultimately, it comes down to this. Every person that has ever been will have either the mark of the beast or they will have the seal of God. There's no one that's going to fall outside those two possibilities. It's either you're in this camp or you're in that camp. There is no middle ground. Verse 17, it provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of the beast. Uh, you know, this economics, and, and if you put this in context, if you think back, when we were studying these, these letters to the seven churches, that very often you see there that the, the people in those churches were suffering economically. They were being persecuted by the culture around them. They were being excluded from the culture around them. Many of them were not able to participate in professional guilds, which in those days you had to be of the guild in order to do things like silversmithing and Ephesus and you know, things like that. They were big trade groups. Sometimes they were not allowed to buy and sell. So what I'm telling you is this may be something that you and I can't relate to very much, but it's something that the people who read this book originally could relate to very much. Because they were experiencing it. They were tasting it with their own tongue. They were hearing it with their own ears. They were seeing it with their own eyes. Then we come to the number. The number of the beast. 666. Like so many other things in the book of Revelation, there's been lots of discussion about this over the generations. What does this 666 represent? What does it mean? What's its hitting hidden meaning. Well, I will tell you this, that as far as I'm concerned, there's nobody on the planet that can tell you definitively what it an answer that question. There are you can speculate on it. We can say this and perhaps that. But let me just tell you, when it comes to things like this that are not absolutely crystal clear, we need to be very careful of listening to people who make them seem as if they are absolutely crystal clear. And there are a lot of folks out there that are very willing to do that. You'll see this with Revelation over and over again. Things that are very mysterious, they come to very distinct, absolute conclusions. And that's what they teach. And the next thing you know, they've got people under, under their teaching that are believing exactly the same things. They share it in 
before you know it, half the church is following after something. It started out with one person just coming up with a speculation about something that people took as being the Word of God. When in fact, it wasn't. That has happened more often than we could possibly count in the church over the generations. It's one of the reasons that we have to be familiar with the Word of God. We have to know what the Bible says. We have to weigh every teaching in the balance. Well, there are some things we can say. Well, you know, just like with the, the first and the second beast, people are looking for individual folks that are going to pop up in history to fulfill those particular roles. And that may be, may, may be true. But it may not be true, too. These could be allusions, like we said, to, to principles of, of things, people that arise through the generations time after time after time, reflections of the first and second beast that we see in every generation. We do have an understanding that there is a man of lawlessness that is supposed to arise before the second coming, and we know that because Paul points it out in Second Thessalonians. And people want to make this direct connection between the man of lawlessness and the beast. And let me tell you, scripturally, there is no connection. We just, we don't know. I mean, could it be? Yes, it could be, but it may not be. And we know ultimately who the man of lawlessness is anyway, don't we? Who is it? Satan. <laughs> huh. Okay, we know ultimately it's him. He's the man. He's the one of lawlessness. And he's the one that encourages other people to lawlessness. So some things we can say about the number 666. Well, you can imagine in 2014, I don't remember the date, that the Dow Jones stock average dropped 666 points in one day. And, and if you were watching TV that night, maybe not so much of this, but, but you just saw some people interjecting this into this at that point. You know, and, and you have the end times of people coming out of the woodwork. You know, this is a sign of the end times. Here's the 666 right there. What I would say to you is this, is just like every other number in the book of Revelation, it is symbolic. One of the most convincing arguments that I've read in regard to this is, is this, is just remember, does seven appear in the book of Revelation any? Does seven, the number seven appear a whole lot in the book of Revelation? Yeah, we've already talked about seven trumpets and seven seals, and we're going to seven bowls of wrath, and we talked about the seven churches and seven this and seven that. The number seven occurs way more times in the book of Revelation than any other number does. And we know from the text what it represents. It represents fullness, completeness. It's a representative number which means that we should not interpret seven all in every place in Revelation as literally representing the number seven. 
I'd say the same thing is probably true here. So we take this 666 and we dissect it a little bit. Seven is the number of completeness. Six is one number short of it. In other words, it's the difference between fulfillment and failure. And it's not just one six, it's a trinity of sixes. Six, six, and six. Failure, failure, failure. Now you can take that or leave it. That's interesting to think about that. That perhaps this has something to do with it. It's a measure of the failure and the failure and again the failure of the evil one to overcome the power of God, to overcome the power of his people, to overcome those who have been given his seal, the seal of God. Not the mark of Satan. Now, if anybody around here has a little mole on them somewhere and it's kind of shaped like 666, I'd like to see it sometime. I'm going to go on just a little bit more. Chapter 14, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 140,000 having his name in the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So what is the seal of God? the name of, Jesus, of the Lamb of Jesus Christ and the Father on your forehead. Now, I don't know anybody in this room that has Jesus' name and, you know, tattooed on their forehead. We need to understand that this is an invisible seal. And it's recognizable by the one who needs to recognize it. And that is the one who put it there. God. It's his mark. It's his seal. We've already seen the 144,000 before uh, and this is another number that people want to sometimes interpret literally when there's good reason for us to believe that it should just be accepted as being symbolic. And there's reason to believe that it's in reference to all believers. Same text as mentioned before, in that very same text, believers are described as being, you know, all the nations and all the peoples and all the tongues. A number so great, no one can count it.
So it comes down to this, and this is ultimately where the book of Revelation has been going from the very beginning. We've gotten there a number of times, and we'll get there a number more times. And then there's this big crescendo at the end. And that is the question. Which mark, which seal? Sometimes we wonder about our own salvation because we see the sin that is so active in us sometimes and we try, we try to, to stop doing it and the next thing we know we've done it all again, over again and we're beating ourselves up about it and, and all of that and then we think we're better and the next thing we do is do the same thing all over again. And I hope I'm describing you. Because if I'm not, I'm in deep trouble. Because that is me in a nutshell. Lori can tell you that. There are certain things I struggle with, and, 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 and for a while I'll do a little bit better, but the next thing I know I'm doing the same thing all over again. I hate it. Sometimes you feel like you're schizophrenic. Just like Paul does in Romans chapter 7. You feel like a schizophrenic. You know what you ought to do, but you're doing the exact opposite. And what conclusion did Paul come to? He comes to this conclusion, and that is, is that it's not literally me doing it. it, it re in reality, it's the sin in me that's doing it. Something that ultimately I don't have power over, but God does. Jesus is the only one that can bring in the end of sin. And one of the neat things, guys, about that seal, about that promise he's put on your forehead that you can't see, but he can see it. He knows it's there. Is that one of these days, sin will be put to death in you absolutely, completely, in totality, never ever to raise its angry head once again. See, that's the victory in Christ. It's the hope. And see, this situation that, that, that Ruth is in today, if it were not for the gospel, would be a hopeless situation. But ours is a religion of many things, and one of those is this. It is the religion of hope. And it's not hoping that I will be good enough. Hoping that I do a good enough job. Our hope lies in the one who has done the job. In our stead. And he never fails. Not one time. Has he or will he? In fact, he cannot fail. It is an impossibility. Now that's something worth hoping in. Not ourselves. 